Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Dave Kellogg, multiple-time SaaS CEO, CMO, and the founder of Kellblog. And to all the Star Wars fans out there listening, Dave, to me, is the Yoda of B2B SaaS metrics. Today, we'll be covering four topics with Dave. One, how have SaaS metrics evolved over the years? Two, the nuances and pitfalls of metrics. Three, the SaaS metrics that matter most in 2021. And finally, how will SaaS metrics evolve in a product-led growth and usage-based pricing environment? Dave, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Measure or measure not, there is no try. No. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I've heard the Yoda line. So uh, thanks for having me, Ray. My name is Dave Kellogg, and my journey in, in summary form started out as tech support person at a database company, kind of worked my way over into marketing, ran marketing at two startups, one of which was business objects as we grew to be a billion dollars in revenue. I then ran two startups as CEO, MarkLogic and Host Analytics. In between, I was a GM at Salesforce, and I currently sit on boards to advising and consulting and blogging about SaaS metrics. And very happy to be here. Yeah, and also Dave is a prolific tweeter. So at the end, we'll make sure you guys get his handle at Twitter because he's a must follow. But Dave, you are the most metrics oriented kind of thought leader in the industry. And I just wondered a little bit about what are the top five company level metrics that you recommend every CEO or CFO in a private SaaS company to make sure they measure and use to make better decisions? So I think here are going to be the top ones I can think of, and they're going to start a little bit unexciting and basic, but you asked for top, so I I can't not start with ARR. (laughs) So ARR is the first, right? Because that's the whole point. How much is the subscription base? And then ARR growth is the next one. And you know, if you could only know two things about a company and had to guess what it's worth, that would do it. And I think last time I checked, growth explains, I don't know, half of company valuation, maybe more. You know, the R squared between enterprise value to revenue multiple and ARR growth is at least 50% last time I checked. So those two, ARR and ARR growth rate, then immediately after that, we start to get more sassy in some sense, NDR, net dollar retention. And this to me is a metric that we can use kind of instead of a bunch of other metrics that we used to look at, like churn or LTV. To me, NDR is replacing them. I would say NPS and so net promoter score. NDR net dollar retention, NPS net promoter score, because we want to know how happy the customers are. Because look, you could have a great expansion rate, but people might not be happy, right? So, so we can't assume renewal means happiness. By the way, we can't assume that non-renewal means unhappiness. So the, the beauty of taking NPS, where we just effectively ask, are you happy independently of your renewal or expansion behavior? Very important. And then finally, if I only got one more, because I got five, I would do employee NPS which is how happy are your employees? Because obviously software companies are all driven by people. If I got to sneak in one bonus one, it would probably be customer acquisition cost. 
Because I think while a lot of people calculate customer acquisition cost, I don't think they actually act on it. Because, you know, literally, if you have a customer acquisition cost of, you know, I don't know, 1.2 or or some reasonable low for enterprise software customer acquisition cost, and you have reasonable churn, so you have, let's just say, gross churn less than 10%, maybe net dollar expansion and 110, the question is, why aren't you spending as much money as possible to buy customers, right? To me, in some ways, your CAC is your limiting lever on how fast you should be growing. And I think, I don't think people use it enough in that way. But that's a set of seven that I would use, right? Well, I love the fact that you took some liberty and added a couple more in there. I wanted to double click on a couple of those because historically, that committed ARR or ARR growth, you're right. That was definitely the number one element or the highest correlation to enterprise value to revenue multiples. Over the last year to two, we're finding that net dollar retention, which is really measuring how quickly a cohort of customers is growing, minus all the churn down sales, but plus all the upsells and cross sales, we're actually finding net dollar retention to become more and more important, especially as we go to usage-based pricing. Are you seeing the same thing, Dave, with the growing importance of net dollar retention? Yeah, absolutely. You know, have we been talking two years ago? I I thought you were going to go and talk rule of 40 on me. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, ah, it wasn't ARR growth, but ARR growth as kind of limited by profitability, right? The, the rule of 40 being the sum of revenue growth plus some typically free cash flow or, or operating income, some bottom line metric. And I think you probably didn't ask that because we both know in the last year or two, and again, I haven't checked today on this, but the rule of 40 is a worse predictor than revenue growth. It used to be a better predictor, which is why it got invented, but now it's worse. And I think NDR is definitely rising in investor interest. And I don't have time to open it this particular second, but the place I would go to answer that question is the Meritech, Meritech Capital Enterprise Comparables page. I assume you hang out there as much as I do, Ray. We can make that chart in about two seconds in CDR squared, at least for public SaaS companies. And it usually runs pretty high. Totally agree. A couple of things, and we're going to talk about nuances of these B2B SaaS and cloud metrics in just a minute. It's also very important for the listening audience to understand how those public companies are calculating their net dollar retention or revenue retention rates, because sometimes there's a little bit of, I'll call it subscriber bias that's built into that number. Would you agree with that? In the NDR rate? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the devil's in the detail on all these metrics. And in general, one of the reasons I like net dollar retention is it's not particularly gameable. The churn is much more gameable. Customer lifetime is more gameable. We could talk about why if you're interested, but there's more wiggle room to kind of calculate it the way you want to. Oh, well, let me include multi-year deals and kind of treat them as if they're auto-renewing, right? That's one great kind of trick to kind of reduce your churn rate, which then would increase commensurately your lifetime. The nice thing about NDR is all that gamesmanship goes away, but there is one remaining way to game net dollar retention, which is survivor bias, because net dollar retention is supposed to be, if we want a one-year net dollar retention rate, let's go get the cohort of people who are customers a year ago. We'll call that 100 units. Now let's go look at that cohort's total ARR today, one year later, that's 110 units. Therefore, our net dollar retention rate would be 110%, right? 110 divided by 100. That's the way it's supposed to work. Some people 
will survivor bias that and run it backwards. They'll say, let's look at the cohort of customers today. And then let's look at what those customers were doing a year ago, which in effect is saying, excluding the people who chose to no longer do business with us, comma, here's our net dollar retention rate, right? And that is survivor biased. And it's not a best practice, let's just say, to calculate that rate in that way. doesn't mean that some people don't do it. But some pretty good brand name companies do it that way, in my opinion, quite shockingly. But they're happily in a minority, and I would not recommend that people do it that way because I think you're going to face a credibility. I mean, you better have a lot of other stuff going really right because it's going to be a big credibility question with either a public or a private investor. Totally agree. And for those founders and CEOs out there who are looking at raising a next round, whether they're going from Series A to Series B or Series B to Series C, being able to explain and back up how you're calculating net dollar retention and also using the available to renew or ATR for your retention rates, it's going to give you a lot more credibility if you can back it up and make sure that you're carving out any of those quote unquote survivorship bias elements. Hey, Dave, one of the things I've noticed, if you look at some of the biggest public companies, you know, the Twilio's, when I say biggest, I should say the highest enterprise value to revenue multiples, Twilio's, Slack, even Datadog, we're seeing net dollar retention rates of 140, 150, 160%. Are you giving advice to your CEOs and founders of earlier stage private companies that those are achievable and benchmarks they should be striving for? Sure. And by the way, you do know what I was probably doing in the background, which was figuring out the R squared (laughs) (laughs) of the prior question. And the answer, you are very much right. It looks like the R squared of net dollar retention against enterprise value to forward 12 months revenue is about three times what it is for ARR growth, i.e. it has thrice the explanatory power in explaining the metric. It's not particularly high. It's only 0.35. But nevertheless, that would totally validate your opening statement there about NDR as the new metric, not just for kind of valuing the install base, but like IE is a churn and lifetime value substitute, which is the angle I come from, but from really just a company valuation viewpoint. Now, given that its importance is immense as measured by that R squared, yes. I mean, the short answer to your question is yes. I do tell people those rates are possible. It's a little bit like telling your kid they could be you know, an Olympic gold medalist. You have to be careful <laughs> because those really are Olympic gold medal retention rates, right? Like I personally, for a private, and one of the problems, like I'm going to go back to the Meritech comps because I love that site. And you'll find there that the median is probably around 110 to 120. But remember, the, there's survivor bias in that, right? That's all the best SaaS companies, you know, the ones that got to go public in that cohort, right? Like, you know, the average person at Harvard has pretty good SAT scores, right? right. It's like the average person in the Meritech comp set has a net dollar retention of 110 to 120. So, so you always, to me, you have to remember these are kind of the winners. These are the people who made it, you know, speaking of survivor rises, these are the survivors. These are the winners. Part one. Part two, they're also bigger than you are, right? And particularly for a metric like that dollar retention, I think being bigger helps. I don't know if we're going to believe that, but do I actually believe that? I won't say particularly for NDR, but for many SaaS metrics, scale helps. So I do think when you look at these metrics, like don't go tell a $10 million SaaS company they should have 180% NDR or they should feel bad about themselves, right? I don't think that's right. I think for a 10 to $50 million company, if you're in the 100 to 110 range, you're good, right? If you're less than 100, that, that is going to be a problem. If you're 100 to 110, you're probably fine. You don't have that big an install base to go monetize. And maybe you shouldn't be focused on monetizing it right now. 
right? To my mind, you should be focused on customer sat and growing your new customer base, right? So some of this is a matter of focus, right? As you get bigger, you might say, hey, we've got $300 million of install base. We should be monetizing that better. And you'd be right when that install base is 20 million. Maybe you just let it grow and let the people be happy and don't squeeze them too hard and, you know, et cetera. So I do encourage all founders to keep an eye on all the benchmarks, including NDR as a critical one. But I think it's super important that they both understand what best in class looks like and to understand what best in class means and don't forget the scale issue. So with all those provisos, yes. But on the flip side, you know, I go to board meetings sometimes where I want to cry because, you know, a well-intentioned VC is making a founder feel bad because they don't have 130% retention or they don't have snowflakes, 160 plus percent retention. And it's, you know, a completely different phase, a completely different pricing model, right? They're not even on consumption-based pricing, right? So I don't know. I just, I don't like making people feel bad with benchmarks. I, I like making them, as you phrased the question, kind of aspire or question. Like, gosh, how could somebody else do a four-minute mile? Maybe I can, you know? <laughs> how could somebody else get to 160% retention? Maybe we can, and we should at least think about it. Yeah. Well, two points for our listening audience. In our most recent research, and we're just finalizing the FY20 benchmarks, and it looks like we're going to have about 1,300 SaaS companies. We have found that NDR for private SaaS companies was about 104% on average for private SaaS companies. But one of the key things our listening audience should be thinking about is there are different factors. Your customer acquisition motion, whether it's sales-led or product-led, your pricing model, and even the value of your solution, your average contract value, all have direct correlation impact on NDR. So first of all, make sure you understand that and don't just get lumped into one big cohort. And second of all, Dave, I have recently hosted Software Equity Group on the podcast, and they have something called Net Retention Wave, and they do M&A advisory work for private SaaS company acquisitions. And what they found in the year 2020 was if you have 40% as your ARR growth rate, but if one has 110% NDR and the other company has 100% NDR, that the enterprise value to revenue multiples on average were four to six X higher for the company that had 40% growth rate, but had a 10% higher NDR rate. Pretty phenomenal, right? Yes, but I think I understand why. Phenomenal, but not shocking to me. And by the way, pat myself on the back, go Dave, because the numbers I gave you without any data were lined up with what you said in your 104% rate. I was in the 100 to 110, I was giving you range. But the 104, is, that's perfect. And whatever it's worth, right? I think a lot of $20 million company people feel bad about 104. And I don't think they should be cracking champagne. But look, I mean, as you said, first, it depends on a lot of other variables. And second, I mean, I'm just going to go back to what are we trying to do with this company? Okay, if you're trying to sell it the next year or two, maybe we should go jack it up to the point of the software equity guys. But if we're trying to build this thing for the long term, let's go monetize it later. Right? And there is an argument you want to prove that it's monetizable so you can raise money at a good valuation. I got it. But I just get worried when companies focus too hard too early on expansion. Totally agree. It's just like that company that's 18 months old looks at their customer lifetime value to CAC ratio, but they haven't had a chance to see what their churn rate really is yet, right? Yeah, same thing. I mean, look, this is the danger. I mean, I know one of the things you want to talk about is pitfalls of SaaS metrics, but these are all good metrics, right? They're all tools. There are no bad metrics, but there's lots of ways to misuse them. That was your example. My favorite example is I was talking to, to a founder the other day who was getting grilled about his CAC ratio at 500K in ARR. 
And it's like he's got you know two interns selling the software. There's no repeatable sale model. That CAC ratio doesn't mean anything. So we can never forget the higher level narrative like of what are we trying to accomplish right now? At that phase, at the C stage, we're trying to prove that somebody wants to buy our software, not that we have a repeatable go-to-market model or an efficient CAC, right? And at 10 to 50 million, I would argue, we're trying to prove that we do have a repeatable go-to-market model and maybe not that we're super duper good at expansion. Right. Yes, it would be nice if there was some natural expansion and you're running 104 to 110. That's great. But I don't think you need to be at 160 at that level, particularly if it interferes with your other focus, because you can only focus on so many things at once. And I believe, I mean, this is my inner marketing guy coming out, but I believe at that size range, you should be focused on customer acquisition. Let's get lots and lots of people in. And yeah, we'll monetize them somewhat now, but we're going to get really good at expansion later. Yeah, Dave, that gives me the perfect opportunity to pivot to something I really wanted to cover with you. And it was really from a blog, and this was several years ago, and the blog was titled, Don't Be a Slave to Metrics. And I'm like, well, that's a really interesting title for a metrics geek like you and a fellow metrics nerd, me, to actually tell an audience about metrics. So can you expand a little bit upon what you meant by don't be a slave to metrics? Yeah, I I think there's a tendency... I mean, to net it out, sometimes when I talk to SaaS companies, I feel like they're people who've been told to have 2.5 children, right? And they're like, we got to have 2.5 children. <laughs> it's like, you can't. And yes, that might be the average number. And by the way, you should know the average number, right? You should know that 104 is the average private company, or even better yet, if you slice that data, as I'm sure you do, for our size range, you should know the NDR. And you should be mindful about whether you think you should be above or below that average and why. Right. And and maybe you are in a pure customer acquisition mode and your long term expansion strategy is to launch a second product that isn't even built yet. So you have not very good expansion because you have nothing to sell (laughs) because so you get small price increases or whatever. But it's just not where you are strategically. Right. I'm a big believer that strategy is the horse and operations is the cart. Our strategy draws the operations. And sometimes people get that backwards. And I just think, again, it makes me sad where somebody's trying to be average. Let's just look at P&L structure. Like we want to spend the average amount on sales, average amount on finance, average amount on sales and marketing, average amount on R&D. And to me, that's not a strategy. In fact, your strategy in some ways is expressed by the deviation from the average. Like I worked at business objects. We had some very core innovations in the product, but I've worked at more engineering-led companies and product-led companies. Business objects was a sales and marketing machine in my mind. And therefore, I would expect to see a PL where we were over-investing in sales and marketing. And in fact, we were, but our goal was to get back to average. And I always was like, this feels like some Kurt Vonnegut model where you know we make the ballerinas wear weights in order to hamper their abilities. Like, why are we doing this? This is the thing we're good at. And, and we're trying to make ourselves not good at it. Like, shouldn't we over-invest in the thing we're good at? But you'll end up with this kind of norm convergence where you try to be average on everything. So, so benchmarks, in my mind, and metrics, I, mean, I love metrics and I love benchmarks, but the plea to not be a slave to them is let's always be mindful. Like, like they're helping us. We don't work for the metrics. The metrics work for us. You know, the metrics reflect strategy. They don't drive strategy. It's not a strategy to have a rule of 40 score of 37, right? That's not a strategy. That's a result of a strategy. So that's why I did that post because I do think people forget because they forget two things. One, you can't and arguably shouldn't be normal on everything because that's an average, right? It's back to the 2.5 children thing. And they forget that the strategy is usually reflected in those deviations. 
Yeah. In fact, I have an example that I always love to share. I was brought in to run the go-to-market organization for about a 20 million ARR SaaS company. And one of the things that the board was very focused on was the CAC ratio and how much sales and marketing expense is required to generate $1 of new ARR. And we went from about a 1.3 new customer CAC ratio to about $1.90. And they asked me to board me. It's like, Ray, what are you doing? Your CAC ratio has increased dramatically. I'm like, our growth rates went from 30% to 80% in the same time frame. Let's look at the net present value of those dollars added, right? Over two, three, five years. And they looked at me like, wow, we never thought about it that way. And I was shocked. To me, they were asking me to be a slave to one metric, forgetting that the growth rate was a bigger impact on the value of the company. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. In, in my words, I would put it this way. You were asked to be a kind of a slave to one metric in one time period, right? Because the reality is what was driving up your CAC was invariably idle sales capacity or ramping sales capacity, unproductive sales capacity, probably the best word, that was ramping. And that happens anytime in a SaaS company, you change growth trajectory and not just change. But when you accelerate growth trajectory in a typical enterprise SaaS company, where that means hiring more salespeople and their associated supporting resources, in the year where you decide to change trajectory, your CAC goes through the roof. And there's two ways to solve it. I like your way, which is, hey, go look at the NPV of the people we're acquiring, kind of the unit economics approach. The other way to solve that problem is a financial modeling approach, which is let's go look at a three-year model of this company. And yes, you'll see the CAC spike up when we step on the gas on sales hiring, but you'll see it come back down next year when that capacity becomes productive and basically the percent of ramping capacity to the percent of ramped capacity starts to become the same because what's actually driving your CAC ratio is that ratio, right? The higher the unproductive capacity, the higher CAC's going to be. Makes total sense. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was a little bit more about the importance of cohort-based calculations. And one of the examples I'd give is really linked to what we just talked about. I've seen a lot of companies who were really good in mid-market or the commercial market, and they want to go up to enterprise. And after six, nine, even 12 months, their CAC ratio has went up dramatically. And I'm like, wait a minute, let's look at the CAC ratio for the existing kind of target market, commercial mid-market, but then let's look at CAC ratio for enterprise. And you'll see that that's what's really driving the overall and you can make really bad decisions if you just focus on a non-cohort basis. Are there other examples where you see cohort calculations being really important, Dave? Yes. Um, this is slightly off topic, I think, but it would be on close rates in the sales funnel. And we'll cover this quickly. But when most people look at their quarterly sales reporting, they'll say, hey, how many opties did we create this quarter? 100. How many did we close? 20. What's our opti close rate? 20, 20%. And of course, that's gibberish, right? Because the 20 opportunities you closed are not coming from the 100 you created. In a typical enterprise SaaS company, you have a six to nine month sales cycle, right? So, so I can almost assure you that almost all of the 20 you closed did in fact not come from that 100. So I call this a milestone-based analysis where you just have people sitting at milestones, hitting a clicker. And yes, 20 people did pass by the closed milestone and 100 people passed by the created milestone. And you can calculate that milestone-based close rate, but it's not particularly like, I'm okay to calculate it, but understand what you're looking at. Because if you think you're looking at a cohort, you're not. And the real way to do close rates is you have to go do the cohort. Now, the problem is you need to let enough time elapse, right? You can only do 
if you really want to know on a cohort basis how good were the opportunities we generated, you have to wait six quarters to find out, right? So that's a place where I think cohorts are very important. I would probably look at cohorts by year for customers because things do change year by year at companies. So you can kind of say the customers we got this year, how are they expanding relative to different years? And the last thing I'd say on the actual example you presented, mid-market versus enterprise, I get nervous when software companies do that analysis. And you can tell me how you managed to pull it off in a minute. But the easy thing to do is look at churn and expansion by customer size segment. That's not hard, right? It's nearly impossible in the companies I work with to allocate sales and marketing. And I would argue, unless you have pretty separate sales and marketing efforts, it might even be impossible. So I get nervous because a lot of times there's total certainty about the expansion and churn side, and there's a high uncertainty on the CAC side. And then people will come in and act like there's high certainty on both and say, we should get out of enterprise, right? Or, or, or you know, it's, enterprise is too high a CAC. My first question is, how are you calculating that? You know what I'm saying? I think the thing that scares me more than anything is the asymmetry. Because on the expansion side, we know, and on the CAC side, you, you must be making assumptions unless you've actually structured your business. So all those costs are separate. Dave, you identified one of the most difficult challenges with almost all these metrics when you have different target markets. I'll even use new versus expansion or growth revenue. Marketing often is responsible for customer growth marketing and new name customer acquisition. And we recommend when you're calculating your CAC ratio, you need to allocate sales and marketing expenses that were for new name logo acquisition versus existing customer upsells and cross-sells. And even that allocation, number one, they don't do time-based research to say it's 28.9% for expansion versus new. So you just need to kind of estimate what the allocation is. So to your point, Dave, to try to do CAC ratio for enterprise versus mid-market, typically what they do is they will have dedicated sales organization and they look at the cost of enterprise sales fully loaded versus commercial. And then that's how they allocate marketing expenses, that same percentage. That's the best proxy I've found so far, Dave, and it's not perfect. Yeah. In my personal opinion, I'd rather just calculate a sales CAC. Don't allocate the marketing. Just say the marketing, we don't actually know. I'm not going to give you a complete CAC ratio, but if you want to compare the two segments, we can calculate a sales CAC, which I think is a reasonable approach. That's the way I think about that one. And by the way, on the whole new versus expansion CAC, another difficult question. Here's one example. I run a webinar, a series of webinars, and existing customers show up. That's going to be charged in general 100% to new customer acquisition. But existing customers who went to those webinars may say, wow, I want to expand now. Or wow, I, we can use this for a new use case, right? You started with Star Wars. I'll come back to Star Wars. Lord Vader, the tighter you grasp, the more you let slip through your fingers, <laughs> right? So as you try to grasp these segments, you got to be very careful because sometimes it can get meaningless real quick. And this is why I always say, just really understand what you've counted. And this is why I got so into SaaS metrics, Ray, because I found people, they were making decisions based on numbers that they didn't understand. And they didn't know the limitations of those numbers. And that's a way to get in trouble. And Dave, that's really good advice, especially, you know, the SaaS industry is growing so fast. We have over 40,000 SaaS companies today. That's almost doubled over the last three years from the data I have. And you have a lot of first-time founders and CEOs and even CFOs. And they read one blog or they talk to one investor and that becomes the way they model every metric. And there are nuances. So my recommendation is 
become a student of metrics, talk to five people, talk to people like Dave Kellogg or whoever and say, yeah, I'm trying to calculate NDR. Can you tell me some of the cautions I should have? Or how would you recommend I do it in my context? And context is important. I listen to people on Clubhouse all the time, Dave, and these people who have, you know, ran a company from zero to 2 million once, they're giving all this advice that's not based upon the context of each company. So make sure any advice you take is context-based. Make sense? Absolutely. So I'm going to pivot to the last thing, and that is product-led growth and usage-based pricing. A lot of the metrics we've talked about really evolved over the last 10 to 15 years from more traditional subscription-based pricing model. Do you see these metrics that are really important evolving, Dave, because of those two phenomena? I do. I do. And let's talk about each because I, I have different feelings about each of them. So product-led growth, you know, I always quip that the original product-led growth company was Crystal Reports in some ways, right? Because what did they do? They priced their software very cheaply. They put it into wide distribution. And then after years of kind of Johnny Apple seeding the market by just seeding and seeding and seeding through these low-cost distribution channels of, of kind of a basic single-user product, they then created an enterprise business and an inside sales team that went and picked all the apples, right? And they would just call up people and say, you're using Crystal Reports here and here and here. We've got a thing called Crystal Enterprise and you should buy it. And here's why. It looks very much like an open source monetization model or the original open source monetization models, right? Hey, put the thing in wide distribution show up and sell support or show up and sell an enterprise version. So open core, you know, put the core of it into open source and then sell on top of add-ons. So these models, and PLG to me is similar to those models, right? Like the product is just getting out there, right? It's, and in this case, it's because it's been designed to be easy to adopt and easy to use because SaaS lets the person just start using it directly, right? Off we go. But to me, it's the same idea, right? It's the same idea of how do I get this thing in broad usage and therefore with some keyword being free or low cost, right? Because that eliminates friction. If it costs a whole bunch of money, there's a bunch of friction. So it's going to be free or low cost. And it's got to be easy, right? Because if it's either costs a lot of money or it costs a lot of time, in effect, if it's hard to get up and running or I just don't like it, the whole thing falls over. So to me, product-led growth is designing the product to just be adopted quickly and easily and demonstrate value quickly and then kind of let it grow and then do the crystal reports thing, right? Come in and say, hey, you're using it already. And, you know, even Slack, one of the top product-led growth companies, it wasn't that long before they created an enterprise team and we're getting a huge amount of revenue off their enterprise teams. I mean, fact of the matter is, you know, big companies make big commitments to software. You can get in through the side door, you can get all around scattered through the company, but at some point, somebody's going to decide whether you're strategic or not, and they're going to write a big check, and that's all going to get driven through IT. Sometimes it's driven on the front end, right, the old school SAP approach, and sometimes it's driven on the back end, the crystal report slash product-led growth approach, i.e. you're already using this, why don't we get you on the enterprise version? So I like PLG. I think PLG it changes a lot of the metrics because effectively all that activity is your high funnel, right? In some ways, it just extends the funnel because the funnel isn't just taking somebody from interest to purchase. It's kind of from interest to trial to kind of extended trial to eventual purpose and purchase. And by the way, some models like Atlassian, they actually just drive the purchase and just sell lots of seats and then come in and upsell. So it doesn't have to be free in the high PLG funnel, but it often is or cheap. 
So it certainly changes your marketing funnel metrics a lot because all the challenges in some sense of marketing get inverted. Like a friend of mine was CEO of MongoDB in the early days and their problem wasn't too few leads, it was too many. They had zillions of downloads and very few of them wanted to convert. And they literally had the needle in the haystack problem of we're drowning in downloads and we call people all day and so few of them want to give us money that this may not be a business, right? It was a needle in a haystack. So, so PLG to me changes kind of marketing operational metrics. It probably changes expansion and growth metrics. To the extent the expansion strategy is just continued ongoing adoption, then yes, you'd look for high NDRs and low CACs. And then user-based pricing, you know, to me, I mean, this is a, another old joke, but as was taught to me by the software elders, hook pricing to things that go up. And this trick is as old as the hills. I mean, back in the day, and I'm talking way back, software was actually priced by the MIP, million of instructions per second, MIPS. And, and the price of the product was a function of the MIPS on the processor. Why? Because MIPS went up. And then what goes up? Like Salesforce, fantastic. Every year, most companies hire more salespeople. Sales goes up, hooked to the number of seats. You know, Twilio, hooked to API calls around communications. That goes up every year. So if you could hook to things that go up, and going up relates to usage, that's a good thing. And that's why you see these high NDRs at these companies. Now, the last thing I'd say on this before I flip it back to you, Ray, is you do have two opposing forces because everyone loves usage-based pricing as long as it's going up. But what if it goes down? And this is where, and I know you know this from your time-sharing days, this is where the salespeople come in and they're kind of, they protect the company on the downside with contracts that make sure that basically we're going to see a minimum increase every year and we're going to hit you with kind of overage fees. And if those get too onerous, we'll increase the minimum, right? Because if we make those overage fees unlimited, then we could actually burn the customer and give them an incentive to leave us. So there, there's a delicate act here that, that involves not just usage and product, but also the contracts. Yeah, totally agree. So we don't have a whole lot of time left. So I'm going to make just one comment on each of those. The first is around product-led growth. Right, the premium or the value that's now placed on something called product qualified leads or PQLs, that is what are the variables that have the highest predictive accuracy of a customer will go from a free trial to a paying customer or from an initial paying customer to an enterprise long-term agreement. That's gonna be really important because if you allocate a free user to a salesperson too quickly, you're going to see a lot of burnt resources there. So product qualified leads is one. And on the usage-based pricing, the biggest thing that I can tell anyone before you deploy this, if it's not your current primary pricing model, is understand directly from your customers, what's the metric that they're getting value from? Just because you're seeing something like this particular usage or API calls going up, make sure you validate that your customers see real value and that pricing variable for usage-based pricing mirrors the value the customer is receiving. So those are my two big pieces of advice there, Dave. Yeah, I agree with you on the last one. I, I was being pretty vendor-centric and short-term on the hook to things that go up. <laughs> it does work, by the way. <laughs> but to your point, if you want to be stable over the long-term, if the only thing going up is the price, then the customer at some point is going to want to get out of that contract, right? The value needs to be going up as well. Well, we're going to wrap up here and I'm going to ask you kind of any last minute advice you have for our listening audience, but I want to get the listening audience to know you a little bit better, Dave. So what company or CEO do you think is a must follow in 2021 for any SaaS founder and CEO? Oh, I, I'm going to go to Benioff. I just think he, he's an amazing leader. I worked at Salesforce for a year and he's somebody I watch. I yeah. could think of others, but if I only got one, it would be him. 
Yeah. And I'll tell you where he went from shareholder value to stakeholder value and really looking at ESG, to me, that was extreme leadership. He's always on the edge. That's why you follow him, because he's always on the edge of the next thing. He's so good at that. He is. And he always challenges the way you think. So which tool do you think every SaaS company should be using? It's like it just impacts productivity, efficiency, or growth so much. Gong. Without question, gong. I, I feel like I should be a gong advocate. I have no relationship with the company, but I think it's a phenomenal tool and I think it changes your life in sales and marketing. It's kind of the transmission that connects the engine to the wheels. It's so important. Oh, totally agree. And conversational intelligence, I don't think we even started to unlock the business impact of that. And it requires especially sales managers to become better coaches because they have to listen to those conversations and provide that feedback in as near real time as possible, especially to early career salespeople. And it forces marketing and uh, sales enablement to understand the reality that goes down in the field as opposed to what happens in the conference room or in the data sheet or in the training class. It's phenomenal for sales management and it's phenomenal for marketing, in my opinion, for almost totally different reasons. That's really unique insight. Last question. What advice would you give to someone who's just ready to graduate college or they have graduated college and they want to be a SaaS founder? What's the advice you'd give them to them? I want to be a SaaS founder. So, so I want to be using all these old examples, but for years, my example was always from the graduate old movie where he goes, plastics is the future. And for years, I literally told everyone data science. And that was really good advice, by the way, because I've been saying that for probably the last 10 years at this point. And boy, was that good advice. But this specific question is they want to be a founder. I think if you want to be a founder, you should, in my opinion, go into product. I mean, I would say go into product management, product leadership, because you're getting a good view of the whole business, right? You're working with engineering and building the product. You're working with the customers and problems and why they solve it. I would say go join a fairly small SaaS company, you know, 50 million or less. Go work in product management or product, depending on what it's called, and learn how the business works. And then go, go find a problem you're passionate about and start your own. That's great advice. So we got follow Mark Benioff. Make sure you know what Gong and conversational intelligence is and understand what a product management point of entry for your career journey is. Great advice. And that's a wrap to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. And if you, the listeners, are enjoying our guests and the topics we discuss, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us a rating and your comments of how we can make the podcast even better. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. And thank you, Dave, so much for being our guest today. Thanks for having me, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.